All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Good evening, Making the Argument audience. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm here with the gentleman for Making the Audience. Tina wasn't able to join us, but Nick was able to call in, which is a blessing. We're also with Hamilton and Christian. I'm very excited to talk today about the State of the Union. And I know a lot of people have talked about it over the last couple of days, but I think it's really important to kind of unpack what exactly Biden was saying and how Republicans should probably try to respond and what this may mean for the future. So I am excited to discuss all of his false claims. We're going to look at exactly where he went off the rails and kind of break down what he was trying to say. Uh, we'll discuss his poor actual speech performance. We'll talk about some of his specific lies. And as we go on, we'll talk about the future for him possibly running for re-election and what this might mean for 2024. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Thank you for that, Lydia. If you haven't already, be sure to go down to the description of this episode and look for the link to join our community chat on an app called Volley. You will need to download the app and log in, create an account, but I promise it's worth it. We're discussing all of these topics right there after the show is over. I am so excited for today's conversation because I was getting heated listening to Joe Biden talk about this stuff because I keep pretty close tabs on what all is going down and I made no bones about it on my own live stream, on my own YouTube channel. I really have such a abject dislike for Joe Biden's policies and pretty much everything he stands for because he has kind of gone out of his way on one hand to try to pretend like he's this warm, friendly, gentle grandfather. And on the other hand, we know, like I believe it was time.com uh, in 2018, talking about has, how his entire family has overtly benefited from his time in office. And it's really kind of telling how exactly he runs his personal life. And it, it tracks pretty closely to his really kind of corrupt politics and the way he tries to spin and make it seem like he's the good guy in the situation. Now, before we talk about the State of the Union, we all kind of know that the State of the Union is basically just a glorified press conference where the president gets up and says wonderful things about himself and his administration. So it's not a good source of truth. But we are going to look, look at the New York Post fact check sheet here, and we're really going to break down exactly where he went off the rails, starting with the biggest one of the night. Now, Joe Biden claimed that some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. And what the New York Post is saying is that the biggest lie, this was the biggest lie of the night. And they correct it by saying this. 
No one has proposed this. Republicans want to promise want the promise of less spending tied to the debt ceiling. They have not said Medicare or Social Security will sunset. Now, Nick, do you think it would be in the best interest of the United States of America, not in the best interest of the politicians, but in the best interest of the people if we were to severely cut spending to programs like Social Security and Medicare? Do you think this is a good play? I think the issue that so the problem is is it's such a political football that there's there's no way you can have honest discussions about uh, you know alternative ideas or whatnot and so the the thing that I usually tell people about is like okay why do we have social security oh well it's because we want people in their retirement when they're not able to work or or have an income we want them to you know be financially stable enough to be able to still live on their own and and do things like that okay great that's a noble objective that's a noble objective. There's all kinds of ways you can do this. And, and the government picked Social Security in the 1930s. And, and the end result is, is that we have an unsustainable system based off of the way it's been managed, based off of the way it was set up. And so I, I would like to see alternative solutions actually just be considered for five seconds before everyone throws up their hands and say, well, if if we don't use this particular solution, then you want old people to die, right? Like that's that's always the way that this, this conversation is, is couched. And what's again, mind-numbingly stupid about it is that we can look at other countries that have chosen other pathways that have achieved far better results. And so I, I would like for it to stop being treated as if it's some sort of, you know, sacred thing and the only possible way we could address old age retirement or old age insurance or whatever you want to categorize it. Um, but we, we have to admit this has not been managed well. I mean, lo and behold, the government's not good at managing retirement plans or insurance or anything else. Um, of that nature. So the the most important thing I think everyone needs to, and that I, I do think that you'd find some common ground on, is this notion of, okay, regardless of what we do, people were forced to pay into this for their entire lives, and they expect to be able to get the benefit they were promised. Right. And I think there is a way that you can actually make good on that promise, while at the same time providing uh, different pathways in the future so people can say, okay, I don't want to be a part of this government system. I, I would like a different option. And, and I would just like the freedom to be able to choose a different option that achieves the same end state. And I don't think I should be prevented from doing that. And I don't think I should be put in a position where I have to subsidize the option I haven't chosen. And once you start categorizing the argument that way about common objectives, but different approaches and more more choice and freedom and opportunities within those choices, I, I think you have the groundwork for a, a good conversation. But unfortunately, right now, the moment you say anything about cutting funding for Social Security, all people hear is that thing that you paid in all your life, we're taking it from you. And, and they're right to feel that way. Right. They, they, are, they are justified in, in the fear and the concern associated with that, especially if they absolutely dependent on it as, as a core component of their income later on in life. But um, that's where the conversation has to start. And, and as far as what Biden is claiming, this is what happens every time, every time a Republican even says anything about how poorly Social Security has been managed, the, the, the problems with respect to how it was set up uh, fundamentally at the beginning, uh, any, any particular alternatives or choices, it, they never come and attack the the actual argument, which is, you know, those things, they always they always create a straw man. And the straw man is you want grandpa and grandma to die. Right. And then they just bludgeon you with that repeatedly. And the media, it you know, dutifully shows up to repeat that narrative without ever asking, you know, important underlying questions. And of course, the only solution they have for Social Security is, well, we got to raise taxes on rich people. 
Like, okay, well, <laughs> if you're not actually addressing the fundamental problems that we have within Social Security and the way it's structured and the way it operates, well, then just taking more money from a certain group of people and putting it into the fund isn't going to get you there because you're, it, it's just going to – it might prolong it out more, but you're, you're still on a pathway to destruction eventually. So that's that's that was kind of a long explanation, but I think that's the way that we have to address it if we want to have a meaningful dialogue about it. Nick, that's a great response. Nick, I've got one. I've got one more question for you, Nick. How is the debate on Social Security different on the federal level compared to what's currently taking place in Virginia? I'm sure this has been a topic of conversation while you've been in Richmond. So to be honest, we haven't had a great deal of talk about, you know, what's going on in the State of the Union or, or Social Security. What we've, we've talked a lot about in Richmond does have to do with tax policy and, you know, people being able to benefit from the economy. And, and again, anytime we try to cut taxes, the automatic argument from the other side is you just want to give a, you know, tax cut to the rich. And, and what's and then we'll say, okay, well, what's your proposal? Well, they either want more government spending, right? Or, and they call it investment. They never call it government spending. They want more investment. Or they want something they call tax cuts, but they want the tax cuts to go to people that are actually not, you know, that are, are they end up being net beneficiaries of government payouts. So, for instance, they'll, they'll advocate for a tax cut to someone that is not paying net taxes on the whole. And you look at that and like, okay, well, that's just more government spending. Like you get that, right? It's just more redistribution. You haven't actually, you haven't actually created a better tax structure. Um, you, you've just picked people that you want to win within the economy, and then you've given them more money. That, that's it. And so that's part of the problem that we have with, with it, and that's part of a larger narrative when we do talk about some of these other programs. It's this idea that the, the government is turning things that were supposed to be entitlement, which, again, an entitlement program is I contribute and then I get something out of it. And more and more, they're just turning these things into additional redistribution of welfare programs and poorly run ones at that. But the moment we say this is poorly run, there has to be a change, we never get, we never get an argument back that says, no, it isn't. It's fabulously run. Or, you know, no, it isn't. You know, you know, we don't have to do anything about it. It's perfect the way it is. We don't get that. What we get is you want to, you, you don't care about people. You just want rich people to have more money, and which is fascinating, too, because if you look at the voter demographics, you know, Manhattan is, is <laughs> you want yeah. to talk about a bunch of, a bunch of wealth. Wh who do they vote for, right? They don't vote for us. Yeah. They, they, vote for, they vote for Democrats. So it's just a ridiculous argument but that's that's the closest that we've seen with respect to what's going on in rich right now in that larger debate i, I want to make sure i've got this right before we move on to the next point nick what you're saying is that the democrats are proposing to lower taxes on individuals who pull more money out of the system than they are even putting in currently that, that's typically what ends up happening especially at the federal level because what most people don't realize is that before you're a net payer of federal income taxes you have to be making some you have to be making somewhere in the neighborhood of about $75,000 a year before you're a net, you know, payer to to federal income taxes. I mean this this is why when you look at the charts and they say oh the rich aren't paying their fair share and it turns out that okay well the the top 50% of wage earners in the country uh, pay roughly 97% of all federal income taxes. And then if you look at all the other additional taxes that are paid on top of that with respect to corporate taxes and things like that, again, that, that's, all, that's all taking from that cut of the, of the upper 50%. We, we have one of the most progressive tax systems in the world, and yet we, we still have to combat a narrative which is on its face just blatantly false. 
And so, but it, but it sounds good from a narrative component because you're you're always picking somebody that we are we already feel sympathetic to, right? The person that is maybe down on their luck, uh, the single mother, uh, the the elderly person that you know needs to be able to pay for medicine and food and all. Like we we're all sympathetic to those people. The difference is what's the best way to address it. Well, we'll look at the current government programs and we'll look at the current tax structure and we'll say, okay, the only way you can pay for all the things you want right now is you have to have economic growth. In order to have positive economic growth, you actually have to have a system where we reward success instead of punishing it. High taxes, high regulations punishes success, punishes risk, punishes entrepreneurship, punishes investment. You can't have that. And, and get the growth you need to pay for all the things that you want. And the attitude coming back to us is, this isn't about money, this is about people. What? Okay, well, if you care about the people, you're probably going to need the resources to be able to take care of the people. <laughs> and, and so that's, that's the frustrating component of, of this narrative and the nature of the debate that we find ourselves in, is we say this is a bad system, this would be a better one. They say you're a bad person, we're a better one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that is a really interesting conversation. And Nick, you have such great insight on that. Now, on that note, the next claim I think we're going to look at, we're going to kind of jump around on our little graphic here. And maybe Christian can weigh in a little bit on this. And certainly Nick can. Uh, President Biden claimed because no billionaire should pay a lower tax rate than a school teacher or firefighter. Now, as Nick just said, these people who tend to make less than like, what was it, $75,000 a year, tend to get more out of the system than they put in. And this is actually something that just clicked for me because I never owed in taxes until I earned over a certain amount of money. Thank goodness I was very blessed. But then when my taxes came in, I was like, wow, I owe a lot more money than I realized. Now they say what the truth is here is that the White House claimed in a fact sheet that in a typical year, billionaires pay an average tax rate of just 8%. Then they go on to get to that number. The White House includes unsold stock owned by the 400 wealthiest families as quote income, close quote. They would pay taxes on it if they sold it. Independent tax analysis shows that the wealthiest pay 22 to 25% a year in income taxes, not lower than a school teacher or a firefighter who pay much less. The rich paid a whopping 42.3% of all federal income taxes last year. And this is something that I wish that more people in general knew. I mean, independents, Republicans as a way to combat some of these con talking points from the left about how little the rich pay in taxes. And just to tie back into our last point, Nick, you were mentioning that wealthy people tend to vote Democratic. And before the 2020 election, I was looking over a lot of this conversation about how Democrats actually have a huge issue connecting worth with working class people. And specifically, actually, they mentioned working class black men and certainly white men as well. But what's happened to the Democratic Party that they never seem willing to admit is that they are now the party of the wine cave and all of this other various wealthy, high-living billionaires and millionaires and these huge donors. So when they say things like, oh, you just want tax cuts for the wealthy, that's because they're operating under the assumption that the GOP is still the party of the wealthy bankrolled by like the Koch brothers and a lot of these big um, business people. 
And that's certainly not the case anymore and definitely something that needs to be addressed. So Nick, how do you think we compassionately and forthrightly make the case that America is great because people have the opportunity to get wealthy? I feel like here we're kind of making the case for capitalism, which really isn't something that we should need to do. But unfortunately, with the state of our politics, something that we have to do. How can we say people deserve to get rich? And you should, too. That was the American dream. I had a room full of students in my classroom, or excuse me, in my office the other day, coming and visiting the Capitol, and they wanted to talk about issues. And I was explaining to them some of the issues that we have with, with government debt and why we can't pay for some of the programs that they'd like to see expanded. And, and this one girl asked me a great question. She goes, well, you know, how do we, she goes, I, well, I, I don't have the money to pay, you know, all of this down and the richest 1% are not giving it up. So how do we do this? And I said, that's an interesting question. I said, let me ask you something. When you talk about the richest 1%, right, first thing you've got to realize is that if, if we literally went to, if we drove up to their house with guns right now, confiscated their entire property, right, like all of everything they own, everything they own like their socks, right? And we and we sold it all off. We we would only pay for, you know, probably several months of government spending. Right? And that would be it. Like all the wealth that had been created, all the the factories and like that we had sold off, that would all be that be that's gone now, right? You don't you don't have the revenue from that. And that's all you did. I said so so the the problem is not and I'm I'm suggesting to you the problem is not what you think it is, not to mention the fact that where do you think those people, richest 1%, 10%, whatever it is, where do you think they have their wealth? And, and it was funny because, like, these kids start saying, oh, it's probably like an offshore accounts or it's in protected accounts or it's, you know, they, they've got it somewhere where it can't be taxed. And I said, actually, no, that's, that's not the case. The vast majority of their wealth is actually in businesses. Um, it, it's actually in, invested in, in stocks, in bonds, in, in the various things that, you know, we all use to start businesses. It's if you were going to go start a business right now, uh, of, of any size, or if you're going to expand your business, you're either going to go to a bank or a fund in order to get investment money. That's where you're getting it, right? You, you're relying upon that money that is available to you in order to be able to take out these loans, start a business, and do what you need to do. I said, so you tax all that, you take it away, you give it to politicians. Do you, I mean, do you think that's going to be a better approach? Not to mention the fact that what have you done to the incentive structure now? You've just, you, you're killing investment. You're killing risk. Uh, and, and you need all of those things in order to have a thriving economy where more people can actually elevate themselves up to the economic station that they want. Now, I just explained that fairly quickly, right? But that is a, that is a lot more you know, difficult explanation to put on a bumper sticker than rich people bad because, look, that person's got a yacht and you don't and you work really hard and that person you know, just bangs away on a computer you know, a couple hours a day or whatnot. And so part of this is a larger explanation to people that would, would like to have the, the comment. But there's a couple different ways I think we should approach this. One, Thomas Sowell does an excellent job of when he goes, when we say things like the top 1%, the bottom uh, 10%, the, you know, the whatever, he goes, we're, we're talking about these brackets as if it's the same people in these brackets for their entire life, as if there's yes. some designated bottom 20% or some designated top 20%. He goes, what happens is when you actually follow flesh and blood people throughout their lives, here's what you discover. 70% of them start off on the bottom uh, 20% and then they make it to the top 20% by the, you know, when, once they're in their like 50s, 40s, 50s, et cetera. 
And he goes, and why is that? Well, because when they started off in the labor market, they, they had, you know, maybe they went into a trade or maybe they went to um, school. Okay, well, they started off as apprentice. They weren't making much. Or they had college loans they had to pay off. They, had, they, they built up work experience. And then what they do? Well, they bought a house, right? Maybe they got a 401k. And, and they, they worked in an industry for, you know, 20 years and got pretty good at it. And, and that commanded higher money with it. And so by the end of the time that, you know, now that they're in their 50s or 60s, now you have someone that's actually accumulated a lot of wealth. The real question is, is why are there some people that never move up and down the income bracket? And typically within the United States, it, it can usually be chalked up to one of two things, um, either things beyond someone's control. Maybe they had like massive medical bills or maybe they got harmed in such a way or hurt to where they, they weren't able to continue to work or there was some other, you know, things like, so, so catastrophe, right? The unforeseen. And then a lot of other is they, they either just chose not to because they didn't think it was worth their time or their effort or their energy, right? They legitimately said, I am happy making this much and I don't particularly want to buy a house and I'm going to rent. And like they did that, or they made really bad decisions, and so the, the question in all of this is, okay, well, do we want a system that incentivizes good decisions or do we want a, a system which incentivizes bad decisions? Because if every time you make a good decision, there's a politician showing up to take something from you in order to give it to somebody else, not because they actually understand why this other person is in the condition that they are, but just simply because you have more, they have less, I'm going to, I'm going to take from you, I'm going to give. You, you actually encourage both people to not work in that situation. You encourage them both not to work, both not to invest. Because one person you've punished for doing all of those things, and the other person you've rewarded for doing the opposite. And both of them have learned the lesson that it really doesn't matter. Well, Nick, what you're forgetting is that the best system is the system that makes it easier for me to get elected. So if I go out there and I tell people what I think they want to hear in order to get 50.01% of them to vote for me in the next election, that way I'm in charge and then I can, you know, impose whatever sort of policies I want. Well, then so be it. Um, I, I really do think that, I mean, I've talked about this before in previous episodes, but this is why our founding fathers were worried about mob mentality at the ballot box. They wanted a system of checks and balances. That way you could not have demagogues come along and promise people certain things at the expense of other people in order to get elected. Because one of the things that our founding fathers did was is that they studied history quite a lot. And they found out that when you set up pure pure democratic societies with no form of checks and balances. And the only thing that decides whether or not a policy gets imposed is whether or not you can convince 50.01% of the population at any given point in time to support that policy. Even if that policy ends up destroying that 50.01% of the population. And I think that one of the things that separates many democratic politicians from their Republican counterparts is that Basically, Democrats play to win, and a lot of Republicans simply play to not lose. And for Democrats, play to win means promise people the moon even if you physically can't deliver. And then when you can't deliver, you use the lack of delivery in order to justify in the next election cycle why you need to be voted back in again or why oh, your successor to, needs to be voted in. Go ahead. To, to that point, to that point, I have seen delegates— that, that I've, I came into the General Assembly with, get up almost every year and talk about how horrible it is in their districts. And, and it's, I swear one of these times I'm gonna get up and be like, gosh, I really feel bad for your constituents. Have they tried voting for Democrats yet? 
oh, that's all they've done. <laughs> like, you've been here for eight years and you continually talk about how crappy it is in your district, how dangerous it is, how violent it is, how poor it is. It's like, well, clearly electing you didn't help, right? Um, and, and, I, and I don't mean that to be just flippant. It's this idea that, and I think Christian was alluding to this, it's not as if they institute their policies, things get worse, and then people make the connection that, oh, that policy is why this got worse, and so therefore I should change course. Getting worse is actually better for the people that are advocating those policies in many ways, because if you're in a situation where you had your business wiped out or you were already struggling economically, and now here's somebody that's saying, I'm going to be the one to help you. And they're not only saying, I'm going to be the one to help you, but they've given you a bad guy, right? They've given you a reason why any of the problems that you're facing are not your fault. They're somebody else's fault. And this person is now going to be your champion. And oh, by the way, when they go and they take from that person and they give it to you, you shouldn't feel like you're getting charity. No, no, no. You, you're just getting what's rightfully owed to you. And oh, by the way, that's noble because you took it from somebody that was, you know, mean and, and just a fat cat. And so it perpetuates this mindset of us against them. And, and who's us? Uh, us is whoever's being promised whatever from, from the government. And, and who's them? Them is whoever has more, right? We're not even going to ask questions on why they have more, right? We, we could actually agree that if somebody has more because they set up a, a fake fund like Bernie Madoff and ripped off a bunch of people, yeah, not only do we want to take that person's stuff, we want to put them in jail. Like we could agree on that. But they don't ask that question. It's not why does this person have more? It's they have more, take it. And it's never the question of why does someone else have less? Is it because they chose a career field or an option that, quite frankly, they might find very fulfilling but is never going to be uh, one that, that makes a lot of money? Is it because that instead of actually paying attention in school, they decided that, you know, I, I don't really care and I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to do drugs, right? Like it, it's, and, and again, I don't say any of this to be mean or flippant, but I'm saying that when, when you're not, when you're just looking at quintiles, right, 20% here, 1% there, 10% there, and you're not actually looking at the people and the individual stories that occupy those quintiles and you're just making these, these judgments, well, that, that's very easy for politicians to do and exploit, but ultimately it creates a very, very disastrous system with, with um, perverse incentives. And, and when we talk about things like taxes and when Biden throws this stuff out there, he knows what he's saying is a lie. And, and probably the best representation of this was somebody actually went around and they had tax code information, they had tax code information, they had the data, and they did man-on-the-street interviews in, in New York City. And they asked just random people, do you think the rich pay their fair share? And almost every immediate response was, oh, hell no. Right. Right? And almost hell no. And they said, okay, well, what do you think? What do you think would be a good percentage for the, for the rich to pay in taxes? They said, oh, you know, like at least like, you know, 15 or 20%. Okay, they pulled it out, they showed it, and then they said, even with the, the cutouts and the carves outs and this over here and the tax credit here and this, this, and they're still paying this percentage and they're paying this percentage of the overall taxes. And every single response from people was like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, it, like people honestly buy this. The reason why Joe Biden feels perfectly comfortable getting up and lying to this degree, because that is a lie, is because he knows he can get away with it. It reminds me of the conversation that Elon had with the Babylon Bee on one of their podcasts where he was talking about how, you know, people will make the comment that he's the richest man in the world. But then he said that, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of people decided that Tesla was a valuable stock for them to invest in. And he happens to own, I think, 20% of the company. And so it wasn't, it, it was people that investing in his company that made him this wealthy. And all of his wealth is mostly in the stock options that he has. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I, this was actually, it's actually an example I used for the students I was talking to. I said, you know, again, I said, when you talk about Elon Musk being the richest man, that doesn't mean he's got a, a vault full of gold that he's hoarding. Right, he just happens to own most of the stock in Tesla because he started the company and, and people have voluntarily invested in it. I said, okay, you guys all have smartphones, right? Did you buy your Apple because you just, gosh, you just think the world of Apple as a corporation and you want to make sure that everyone, you know, in the boardroom at Apple is, is making a really good, no, you didn't do any of that. You don't care what they make. You bought an iPhone because it benefited you. That's why you bought it. Well, guess what? When a billion other people make the same decision, <laughs> The people making that product and service are going to do well financially, and guess what? You want them to because people that are doing a good job of providing the things that you want to make your life better are the sort of people that you want to encourage to keep doing that. And you didn't even have to think about any of that. You just had to pick the product that you like the best and go and get it. And the people that did it right benefited, and the people that didn't do it very well went out of business. Now, the person that went out of business because they didn't do a good job making what you wanted, that doesn't make them bad. That doesn't make them evil. It just means they weren't good at that particular task and they should find a different one. It also doesn't make you bad or mean because you chose not to buy their product. And it sure as heck doesn't make the person that provided the product you wanted a bad person because they succeeded at doing what you wanted. Right? It's so simple when we actually break it down in these, these kind of you know, easy to understand transactional terms between free people just making choices based off of their own preferences. But instead, politicians live off of, they depend upon a society where we can quickly identify, otherize, and marginalize. And, and that's what's really scary about this. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think one of the most interesting things is that I think it's Ben Shapiro who talks about the three main things that you need to succeed in life. And that's to graduate high school, get a job and not have children until you're married. And I think about that often because I'm like, these things are so simple, but so many people, it seems to elude them entirely that this is what it takes to succeed in our great country. Now, one of the things that is on the top of everyone's mind right now, and kind of similar to what we were just talking about with these people who succeed and fail in the market is jobs. Now, one of the claims Biden made, and I really kind of want to throw this to Christian if he has input on this, Biden said, we have created a record 12 million new jobs. And then he went on to say more jobs created in two years than any president has ever created in four years. <laughs> hey, real, real, real quick, before you do that, I want to I show you how stupid this is. Where's Gina? Oh All right, real quick. We're, I'm, I'm in the hallway right now with my legislative aide. Okay, Gina, you're fired. Gina, you're hired. I just created 100%. 100% increase in jobs in an my infinite, office. An infinite in, yeah. percent increase in jobs yeah. in your office. Because because I had one person, I fired him, then I rehired him. That is a 100% job growth in the last right. four seconds in my office. <laughs> Delegate Freitas' office is delivering results for Central Virginia. 100% job growth okay. in his – you should actually get on the floor and brag about that. Um no, I, 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 Lydia, I've got a um, simple three-step plan for any politician to 
um, rapidly grow the economy, especially when it comes to job growth. Step one, shut down the entire economy and fire everybody from yeah. their jobs. Step two, <laughs> reopen the economy and allow some people, some, not all, to, re, uh, to reclaim those jobs that they lost. Step three, stand in front of Congress in the State of the Union address and claim that you have established, quote unquote, record job growth. Because that is exactly what Joe Biden has done over the last two years. You know what step one was? Step one was Democrat governors in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Virginia, Wisconsin, California, New York, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, shutting down. I, I mean, fully shutting down their economy. I'm old enough to remember the governor of California allowing his state to put sand in skate parks in order to prevent people from going out and skating during COVID. I remember when you would go to Long Beach, California, and you would stand by the ocean by yourself, and you could be arrested by the state police in California. I remember the governor of Michigan ordering grocery stores to physically tape off the gardening section of their of, of, of uh, grocery stores and convenience stores. That way you couldn't buy seeds for your garden. And we've talked to, to business owners in Pennsylvania. I know a couple of us. And what the governor in Pennsylvania said was, is that entire sectors of the economy were quote unquote, non-essential. And we're going to ban businesses from being able to open their doors and operate. And, and obviously they're going to have to lay off all their workers as well. So Democrats who were running states like New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, California, literally destroyed their state economies, shut down, made it illegal for you to do work, got millions of people fired from their jobs. And then Joe Biden gets into office and woe and behold, they start reopening the economy and some, not all, because the one thing that Joe Biden wants to leave out is that there are still less people in work today than there were in January, 2020. We still really? have not recovered from COVID wow. in terms of jobs. Yeah. And yet he wants to yeah. go out there and tell people we've created record numbers of job growth. You know what he is saying? He's saying, gosh, the next guy just needs to come into office. And on day one, he needs to just completely destroy the economy and make it so that way everybody in this country gets fired. And then he needs to lift the draconian regulations and laws that he's imposed to allow some of those people to get back into office. And then he can claim record job growth. Well, gee, by that same logic, can't we claim record deficit growths as well by how about this? Let's pass a bill to build a death star and spend a quadrillion dollars building a Death Star. And then two months into the program, let's pass another bill to repeal that. And then every politician in DC can go back to their constituents and say, man, we just cut the largest amount out of the budget in history. I'm just the biggest fiscal conservative ever. We cut a quadrillion dollars from the budget. It, I, it, it, it is this, I'll end with this. It is this level of dishonesty that has led to people hating politicians. This is why people hate politicians. The, 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 the general trope of politicians lying is because they will say things that requires you to spend 10 minutes explaining how they're wrong, but they're absolutely wrong. But it's easier to sell the lie than it is to deconstruct it. Christian, do you think that people in the middle of the political spectrum and those on the left hear a statement like this and see anything wrong with it? I, I don't think that they hear any of what I just said. Well, what Biden is claiming 
Oh, no, I don't think that they have any issue. I, I, I think that they will brag, especially if you're like on the, you know, resist lib spectrum and you're, I mean, look, tribalism is one hell of a drug, right? And, and political tribalism is, I mean, if tribalism is a powerful drug, political tribalism is the DMT of tribalism. Like it, it is, it's the most powerful drug out there. And, and when you see somebody that's, you know, in the tribe that's saying something that sounds good, that makes your tribe look good, you're going to defend it to the death. And it doesn't matter if it conflicts with any other established facts in reality that takes precedent over everything else. That's why you get so many people who are engaged in politics that will, you know, j just, just set aside. In, I mean, they will buy into any sort of cognitive dissonance strategy in order to justify believing things that are patently false. Well, I mean, I mean, think think about this. More people, <laughs> more people around the globe have died because of things politicians did than anything else, right? Whether it was you know wars, famines, everything, and, and that sounds crazy. But the the reason why I point that out, and I don't mean it to be hyperbolic, it's it's because you you have to look at this from the perspective of what does government represent? Well, it represents the use of force. Now, again, we can argue all day long about where it may or may not be appropriate, but the, the point that we hammer on all the time is that if, if you're in the tribe that believes that, no, 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 the government is the primary force for how we achieve good and justice in the world, well, then you're going to have a visceral reaction to people that don't want to give more power or resources to the, the entity that you're relying upon to achieve prosperity and justice and everything else. And, and the, the problem is that more and more it becomes this zero-sum game because if, if again, you, you haven't bought into a particular policy. I'm not talking about the Democrat that's a Democrat because, I, I don't know, they, they, their dad was a union, they weren't a union, and they just always saw Democrats. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person that like, is absolutely bought into this. This is why the government needs to mandate speech, and this is why the government needs to pay for everything, and this is... Okay, that, that person has bought into a worldview that isn't just left or right. That person has bought into a worldview that this is the primary mechanism for achieving prosperity and justice and peace, right? And they've picked the thing that, if we're being honest, is, does not have a great track record, <laughs> right? Right, so... But if you're in that tribe, right, you're, you're no longer arguing just for a policy. You're arguing for a particular worldview, and anybody outside of that worldview is not standing against your government policy. They're standing against the mechanism you use to achieve justice. If this is sounding more and more to you like a religious conviction, it's because it does take on that particular approach. Um, someone like me looks at, at government ultimately as something that at, at best is kind of a necessary evil. And, and people say, oh, you, so you're calling the government. No, what I'm saying is, is that it's unfortunate that there are things that we can't just do through voluntary cooperation or that we have difficulty doing through voluntary cooperation. Wouldn't it all be, wouldn't it be better if we lived in a world where everyone just said, hey, look, I'm going to respect you and I'm going to respect your rights and your wishes and you're going to respect mine. And when we agree, we'll cooperate. And when we disagree, we'll leave each other alone. That would be wonderful. I think that would be preferable. And in such a world, it's hard to imagine why you would really need a bunch of force and coercion because that's what government represents, force and coercion. But if you're, if you're going to accept that, okay, there, there's some necessity for the military or for law enforcement or what, okay, great, fine. 
but the, the argument that I would make is, okay, understand what you're doing, though. You're, you're, you're relying on force and coercion now to try to achieve things. And the stakes get so much higher when you do that, because, not just because you, even, in a, even in a democratic society, which is now being held up as the, the pinnacle of, uh, of all societies, even in a democratic society, what it means is 50% plus one, not 51%, 50% plus one can force 49%, you know, or 50% minus one to do what they want. And in a society where more and more of your decisions come down to that sort of calculation, where it's we're going to decide not what I get to do versus what you get to do, we're going to decide what you must do or be punished for. Well, those stakes are pretty high. And, and again, if you've selected the tribe where you not only are willing to accept those stakes, but you believe it is truly the only way to achieve those more noble or aspirations of, again, prosperity, peace, um, you know, health, whatever it might be, well, that's a pretty dangerous proposition. And that's, that's a pretty dangerous drug right there. Um, and, and that's where I think we find ourselves on. I, I, I think this, this has become less and less, you know, Democrat, Republican, and it's become more of this idea of the, the state um, versus the individual. And, and by the individual, I don't just mean like one person. I mean the individual as that person, that you know, member of the family, that member of the community. And so that's where I, th I think that's that's the only thing that I can use to kind of reconcile when I look at the, when I look at someone. I say, but your policy has produced horrible results. Yeah, because it didn't have enough money or it didn't have enough time to work or it didn't have enough resources or because evil people like you stood in the way of it working. Right. But then when we point out, well, wait a second, but this other thing that we try seems to be working really well. Well, it's working well for those people, but what about these people? It's like, wait a second, wait a second. Why is it when you're judging my system or the system I'm advocating for, perfection is required or it's not good enough. But in your system, it can fail everybody or it can fail the vast majority of people time and time again. And, and it's only because you haven't had enough time, resources, or power. At some point, I'm gonna look at you like you, you have a metaphysical commitment to what you're arguing on something that should not be metaphysics. But they're committed to it. And, and I think it becomes a core part of their, their identity. I think that's a great summary, Nick. I think you're right on the money for sure. And that's a really concise evaluation of where these people are coming from. Speaking of the power of the state, I'm going to point us in the direction of one more claim that Joe Biden made that really rankled me personally. And then we can start start trying to think about wrapping up here um, or whenever we're ready. So Joe Biden said, in the midst of the COVID crisis, when schools were closed, let's also recognize how far we've come. And I'm going to deviate a little bit from the sheet here just to rant for a moment, because we know that COVID virus molecules, little spike protein guys that we saw everywhere, were not standing in front of school doors saying children cannot come here. They were not closing churches or places of business. The actual germ cells were not raiding people's homes when they were literally just trying to sell their own products on Facebook Live from the comfort of their own living room, putting no one else at risk. The American government did this to us. And the fact that Joe Biden is standing there and taking credit for the fact that he decided to lift the boot off our necks is honestly gross to me. And you guys are welcome to weigh, on, weigh in on this as well. But the sheet says... 
um, what does it say? They were closed for far too long because teachers unions were allowed to dictate government policies. And Biden's response to the education crisis was not more charter schools, not a focus on the fundamentals, but more money. And I would add a focus on critical race theory. All of this so gross. What do you think about that, Nick? Uh, preach. No, that was great. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's funny now that, especially now that they're realizing that some of their policies, um, you know, were, had adverse effects or were counterproductive or, you know, certainly didn't produce the results they claimed it was. Now they're treating it as, as if all something that just like happened to us. Like, no, 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 right. <laughs> no, no. A lot of the damage that was done was, was more about your response to the crisis than it was the crisis. And, and you get to own that now, but they, they never do, right? It's because, well, who could have known? I don't know, probably the millions of people that were saying this was not a good idea. Right. Th- those, people, those people should at least get, I don't know, maybe some credit for, for being right and being a little bit skeptical, maybe just a little bit, but nope. Right. Those people are still considered the bad guys in all of this. And, and it's amazing. I mean, we, we all saw that article where it was like, you know, maybe it's time to have an amnesty for the things that we did to each other during yeah. COVID. And I want to look at like, what do you mean things we did to each other? I didn't do jack to you, lady. <laughs> like, I wasn't trying to round you up. I wasn't closing down your school. I wasn't closing down your business. I wasn't telling you you had to get vaxxed. I wasn't calling you a horrible person if you didn't wear four masks in public. I didn't do, I didn't do things to you. You did things to us. And you used a whole hell of a lot of force to do it. And the worst we did in return was basically say, I don't like this. Or you know what? I'm unsafe some limited level say, I'm not going to comply. So th- there, there is no amnesty required for the people that didn't actually perpetrate the aggression and the force. So that's, but no, I, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I think it was really kind of telling for me to listen to Joe Biden say that when there were so many people, and this ties right into the big tech stuff, the censorship of people who were saying, hey, maybe we should leave the economy open and just protect the people who are the most vulnerable. Um, And then they were shot down, they were censored, they were removed from the conversation altogether. So we're going to start to think about wrapping up, and I see that Nick has to jump off the call. I'm so glad he was able to weigh in as much as he was. Um, But I wanted to point out a voter panel that the Daily Mail put together for us. Um, this is uh, this is written up by Lee Carter, who's the president of Malensky and Partners, which is a language strategies research and author of Persuasion, Convincing Others When Facts Don't Seem to Matter, which I would argue is very much the case when you're talking to the left. But the title of the article is Damning Verdict on Biden's Speech is In. Voter panel says Joe lost independent voters, the GOP's new rising star stole the show, and the president doesn't seem to have enough support to win in 2024. And the highlight on this one that was super interesting to me, uh, there were a couple here, but and they showed clips from the speech, which we don't need to play now, but independents were confused by Paul Pelosi being present at the speech, and they were like, well, he wasn't, attra- he wasn't attacked by a MAGA man wielding a hammer. He was attacked by a guy who's genuinely just a little bit crazy. Um, and the other thing that independents were not persuaded by was the, the argument about January 6th, which 
I think is an indicator that he has truly lost independence because what Joe Biden has done is just broadly be the most divisive president I've ever really seen. Not as much along racial lines as Obama was, but certainly by opening his campaign, talking about the very fine people hoax in Charlottesville, which has been debunked thoroughly since I think 2017. And he just started out with that and he has continued along the same lines, demonizing these people when it comes to gun rights. He constantly talks about how we have everything to fear from the government. We'll never be able to win against F-15s or whatever with our little AK, you know, AR-15s or whatever. He keeps making these attacks on the right wing and independents, I don't think, find it at all compelling. And I think that's going to cost him in 2024. Not just the fact that he's going to be ancient by the time he even runs for the second term. Um, I think he would be 86 years old by the time he'd be done in office if he did win. Um, he'd be, I think he'd be like 80 or 82 going into it. I don't remember exactly, but he is going to be so old and he's clearly so frail. I was honestly expecting a lot better from him in terms of whatever cocktail they give him before each of his speeches. Um, because they tend to keep him pretty pretty tightly focused and pretty on point when they give him the right volume of whatever it is he takes. Um, and this time it didn't seem to be working. He was very much slurring and stumbling his way through. And I know that's just a stylistic thing, but you know that the rest of the world looks at the leader of what was formerly the greatest country on earth and says, yes, now is the time to fly our spy balloons across this country. Nothing will be done. That's exactly what happened. Biden didn't address that at all. And I think that bodes very poorly for his chances in 2024. Um, where people were saying that he was kind of treating his State of the Union as like his announcement that he intended to run again. I don't think it's going to work out. And especially since he appears to have lost the independent vote that he really relied on in 2020. But we will have to see what happens. I personally don't make predictions anymore. I made a lot of predictions going into 2020 that all tended to fall flat. I was right about a couple things, but I just tend to kind of say we're just going to see where this ends up. We can really hope that a really strong, really America first Republican gets into office and starts to solve a lot of these problems. Um, that would make everything better for us. And I will say as we close too, that I don't think the people who were listening to the state of the union and listening to Joe Biden talk about how great everything was, were truly convinced because we're going to the store. We're seeing how much things cost. And this is a conversation I've had in my own family. I was like, we finally arrived. I'm so glad we make more money than we ever have before. I finally feel comfortable and safe. It doesn't seem to matter. All our hard work is not paying off. That's discouraging. And I know a lot of people feel the same way. And hopefully that will spell the end of Joe Biden's tenure in office. We'll see what happens. Anyway, you guys, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We had a great time. I'm chatting with Nick uh, up in Richmond, working for the people of Virginia. Thank you, Hamilton. Thank you, Christian. Everybody go over and join us on the Volley Chat. It's a fun new app where we interact through videos. It is a new app, or it's kind of kind of interesting to learn the ropes about it, but it's a great way to stay in touch with everybody and kind of pitch your ideas to the members of Making the Argument. And until next time, bye, guys.
Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.